All right, good morning, church. If you guys want to find your seat, come on in. We'll go ahead and uh, get started. <laughs> it's good to see everybody again this morning. Come on in. Before we get going, I want to update uh, some of you guys. I know a lot of you stayed around last week for the State of the Church address. This is kind of my opportunity to uh, share with you some highlights and things that are happening around here at the church and some things that are coming up here in the near future. Uh, if you missed out on that last that meeting last Sunday, I want to invite you to check it out online. We did record it. Uh, we've got it posted. It's a, only about a 20, 25-minute thing where uh, you'll get some great highlights and updates and be in the know of some things that are coming up here very very soon. Uh, one of the things that we highlight, and I do want to keep it in front of you real quick, you're, you may notice this in your bulletin every week when you're, checking it, uh, you're, when you're checking it out, but that debt elimination campaign keeps coming down and down and down more and more every single week. Over the summer, uh, at the end of July, we paid off one of our loans, uh, which is enormous, and you're going to notice on that thing, if you haven't been tracking along, you probably don't know how big of a deal that is, but um, we're only down to about $275,000 left on our total debt elimination campaign. Uh, and church, I just want to say like that's an enormous thing. And if you're new around here, you don't really know anything of what we're talking about here. Uh, basically about five years ago, um, there were some interior renovations with children's classrooms that needed to be developed. That got lumped in with um, the previous debt and a five-year commitment to be debt-free here in uh, June of 2019 was the goal. A uh, little perspective, about two, three years ago, we, ha we still owed about $2 million, uh, and today we're sitting at $275,000. So a little perspective there. That's awesome, by the way, if you're not so. <laughs> uh, I say that to say thank you for your continued investment here around this church. Um, in, that, in that State of the Church address, I talked a lot about what's next after we're done with the debt elimination campaign and what that actually means for ministry enhancements uh, around here at the church. And uh, just suffice to say, there's some incredible things happening around here. And uh, I'm excited to share that with you guys in the future. So um, anyway, on, in addition to that, I also wanted to bring your attention to one more thing. Uh, I want to remind you guys to sign up for our SOAP devotional series that you're going to see online. Real quick, how many of you guys have signed up for SOAP uh, in the past, this past year? Yeah. Okay, so SOAP is our church-wide devotional resource we created to help our church body be able to engage with the Word of God in, uh, every single day in such a way that leads to worship, spirit-filled transformation, and then mission intentionality. We launched it last year, um, and so all you got to do is go online. You can click the top right corner. That'll take you to our online blog, and every single day, uh, Monday through Friday, you're going to get a passage of Scripture sent to your inbox uh, that's going to have to deal with what I'm preaching on that upcoming Sunday. Uh, I try to align the, pa the specific passage that I'm preaching on to Wednesdays. It doesn't always work out that way, um, but most of the time that's uh, the Wednesday passage. So if you love being a critic and uh, ripping apart my messages, then you can get a jump start on those by checking out the blog on Wednesday and uh, trying to predict what we're going to be talking about that upcoming week. Uh, all SOAP stands for is Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. And so every day you're going to get this passage there and you're going to be uh, encouraged to prayerfully read the scripture, make 10 observations about that passage, write out three applications of what that means in your particular life, and then write out a prayer unto the Lord. Uh, one of the things we're doing new this semester, if you picked up on it on Monday, every Monday you're going to hear from one of our bloggers in the church. And so we recruited a team of about eight or nine um, bloggers here. And uh, they're going to be writing their own devotional thoughts and studies and stuff based on that passage. You're going to get that on Monday. So just want to encourage you guys, please be a, a part of that. Uh, would love for you guys to stay connected uh, with that there too. So uh, anyway, that's all I got. And then uh, why don't we go ahead and pray and we'll just jump into the message this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we, um, we just want to tell you thank you, God, for the incredible grace and mercy that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. God, you silence every fear. Um, we just sang about it over and over and over again, Father, but it never gets old, uh, being reminded of everything that you've done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning, the invitation is just would you amplify yourself and would you elevate your name above every other name this morning? God, would you silence the fears that we walked into this room with? Lord, would you silence the anxiety that we feel? Would you silence the critics, the hurt, the pain that we're experiencing? And Father, I pray that you would be lifted up high above every other name this morning. God, we give you our time together. We thank you for your word. Uh, and it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. It is good to see you guys again this morning. Um, if you're new or first time in a long time, uh, like I said a little while ago, we're starting a brand new series today uh, on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past into eternity still future. And so you're not missing out on any context. This is actually week one, and so there's no uh, recapping to be done. But one of the things that we talk about a lot around here is that uh, we want to be people. Our mission is to love all and to help all follow Jesus. And so uh, if we are actually following Jesus, we want to be a church of people that, that, that actually are, are certain that we're following Jesus and not just a, a version of Jesus that we've made up in our own mind. A little while ago, this past week, I was reading an article by John Bevere. He's a uh, pastor up north, and he was telling the story of going and visiting uh, a famous evangelist from the 1980s in prison. And so this is a guy that uh, the evangelist was one of the most influential people in the country at the time. Uh, tons, millions and millions of followers, uh, massive fallout, just ruined and destroyed his life and, and tons of other people. And just, he was in prison for five years. And so he tells the story of visiting him in prison. And uh, the question that he wanted to know was, okay, at what point in time did you actually fall out of love with Jesus? Could you come in and could you discern that, that there's this time when you stopped loving Jesus and there was this kind of this, this, this time in your life where it all changed for you? And the guy looked at John and he goes, John, he goes, I, I've never stopped loving Jesus. He's like, that's never been my problem. My, my problem is not that I stopped loving Jesus. My problem is that I never actually knew who he really was. And it's not until this time that I've been in prison that I've been able to dive into God's word and discover the Jesus that I never really knew. And of course, the guy was kind of, John Bevere was looking at him. He was kind of confused by the whole thing. And he goes, John, like, don't be so confused about this. You got to understand this isn't just me, but like there's millions of people all around the world in the churches today that are just like me. Uh, they love the idea of Jesus, but they don't actually know who he really is. And the reason I bring that up, I think we can see that that's true all around us today. I mean, even if you go into the streets and you have a random conversation with somebody, like most of the people that you're going to talk to, they're going to have affection or respect for Jesus. You talk to an average youth on the street, like they're probably going to be wearing the t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, right? Like I, we love and respect Jesus. But the problem is there's just little to no agreement about who he really is. I mean, you ask a Mormon about who Jesus is, and they're going to tell you that he was the firstborn, firstborn son and greatest spirit child of the Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, that he was a spirit brother of Lucifer and the big brother of all humanity. So he may be God, but he's, he's God in the sense that you and I can also become God one day soon. And you ask a Jehovah's Witness, and they're going to say, okay, he's not actually God. He was created by the Father billions of years ago as Michael the Archangel, and so he's not actually God. I mean, you talk to NBC and the creators of the Bible TV series that was pretty popular a few years back, and they're going to tell you Jesus was a man who became divine at his baptism. 
and you talk to a, a new ager and they're going to say that Jesus was an enlightened master. And you talk to a Unitarian and they're going to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And a Muslim is going to say that he was a prophet. And a Hindu is going to say that he's one of a million different gods. And a Buddhist is going to say he's not even a god at all. Like there isn't even God. He's just a, a really, really enlightened man. But the point of the matter is that everybody knows and loves and respects Jesus. It's just that there's little agreement about who he really is. And so it's not a shock that Buddhists are going to practice things a little bit differently than the Hindus do. And the Hindus are going to look a little bit different than then the New Agers, and the New Agers are going to look a little bit different than the Unitarians, and the Unitarians are going to practice a little bit different than the Christians do, because how you see Jesus will absolutely determine the way that you follow him as well. And so this next year, we're going to be spending the entire year uh, looking intently upon in, in the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. Now, the place I want to start today um, is really that eternity past part. I want to talk about the dual nature of Jesus Christ, his divinity and his humanity. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. I want to talk about why that is so central and how we follow him today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can, uh, you can try to follow along. Um, and this might be one of these messages where I just say, you know what, why don't you just follow along on screen? I'm not going to be sticking to one text like we typically do when we expound on that one thing. I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit to give us a big picture understanding of what's happening in the dual nature of Christ from the very beginning. But the first thing we've got to be able to see is that Jesus' story doesn't begin in the Gospels. Right? Like Jesus' story doesn't begin in Matthew and the genealogy right there. It's not in Mark or Luke or John or any of these things. Like Jesus' story, it begins all the way in the beginning back in Genesis. And we read about it that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He literally spoke, and for five days in a row, everything, was, everything that is was created and it came into being. Then comes the sixth day, and that's when it's time for God to create mankind. And that's when we're going to get a little bit of a sense that, okay, this God who's speaking, this God who's creating is completely other than us. He's not completely like us, that he's actually triune and that he exists within himself as a trinity. I'm going to describe that just a little bit. Um, but we see that in chapter 1, verse 26. He's going to say this on the sixth day of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is going to say that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we are a monotheistic religion because we believe that there is one true God. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But we're Trinitarian because we believe that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, that there's distinction within the Godhead at the exact same time that there is unity. There's unique personalities and roles at the exact same time that they are 100% divine in nature. Thus, one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when you read throughout Scripture, you're never going to see the word Trinity used. But you're going to see the fingerprints and the thumbprint and the, the evidence for a triune God all over the place. Even in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God is one. The word one there is echad in Hebrew, and it's a oneness of completion. 
Uh, it's used of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, when it's talking about two distinct people becoming one in the context of marriage. It is a oneness of completion that's taking place right there. At the same time, the word for God right there is Elohim, and that's actually the plural name for God right there. And so, again, you're not going to be seeing the actual word Trinity in Scripture, but you're going to be seeing the evidence for it all throughout the place. Genesis eleven seven. God is looking down on the Tower of Babel, and here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, come let us go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. Same thing in Isaiah 6, 8. I heard the voice of the sovereign master say, whom will I send? Who will go on our behalf? Right? Even in Luke chapter 3, we're going to see a picture of the triune God kind of all together at the same time and place. Jesus is being baptized. Uh, he's being baptized. He's in the river being baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And then you hear the voice of the Father cry out from the heavens and say, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, notice what he's not saying here in this passage. He's not saying you and I are the same, exactly the exact same, and that I'm really, really pleased with myself because I'm that awesome, right? Like, it's not, like he's not saying that, like there's distinction taking place here, right? The, it's not the Father that took on flesh and condescended from heaven. It's not the Father who was crucified and suffered upon the cross. That's, that's actually a false idea called patripassionism, where uh, it's this idea that the Father is the one who is crucified and suffered upon the cross. You actually saw this common idea um, how many of you guys read the, the book The Shack or you saw the movie or something like that? Um, honestly, it's a great movie. It was a really good movie. It was, a, it was a, a movie that tried to tackle a really, really big subject matter and how God deals with the problem of pain on an individual basis. And so they're trying to bite off a lot of different things. And I really love the movie. I, I tell you this, um, don't ever get your Trinitarian theology from the movies right? Like we have a Bible for that, and it's very sufficient for doing these kinds of things. Uh, nevertheless, there's uh, worse movies that you can see. Anyway, I love the movie, but this is one of the things that I think that they got wrong about it, right? Uh, there's this scene in there where Mac, who's the main person, he's grieving the loss of his daughter, and uh, he goes to the shack to go essentially meet God, and God appears uh, kind of in the Trinity. There's a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, who there, uh, who's there and meeting with Mac at this time, and Mac is blaming the Father figure at this time. He's blaming the Father for his lack of, her lack of passion, which is another issue in the whole movie, but um, (laughs) blaming the father for her lack of compassion. And um, and at that point in time, the father, she she rolls up her sleeves and to prove that she's got compassion, she shows Mac the nail marks in in her wrists, kind of like that she was the one that was right there on the cross suffering and dying for our sins and stuff. It's patripassionism, right? It's the father did not take on flesh. The father did not descend from heaven and he did not actually suffer and die upon that cross. Uh, There's distinction in the Godhead. The father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father. Yet at the exact same time, there's unity in the Godhead at the exact same time. Jesus is going to say, John chapter 10, he's going to say, I am the father. We're one. And he's going to say, the father is in me and I I am in him. And so there's unity in the Godhead at the exact same time that there's distinction. Does it make sense? <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, right. You're liars if you said, yeah, I got it. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like there's nothing in the world that, 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 um, that we can we point to to describe what's taking place. Church, can I just tell you, like, it's okay to rest in the mystery of God. And in fact, I would argue that's a good place to be. To sometimes to step away and to be so caught up in the beauty of God's mystery that it overwhelms you. And it gives you this little simple reminder that, you know what, that, that, that God is so much bigger than me, that he's, so much, that he's knowable, that he's mysterious at the exact same time. I mean, this past July, I had a chance to get away and have some of the best alone time we've ever had as a family. And we get away to 
Hawaii and Costa Rica, um, two different things. And uh, I found myself in the middle of a boat in the ocean, just looking at the, the enormity of the ocean around me. And I just had, my, I had this thought, and I kept going, I'm like, the ocean keeps going as far as my eye can see. Lord, how big must you be to be able to hold this thing in the palm of your hand? And I remember laying out on the deck one night, and it was one of those nights where the stars, like there's not a light around you, but it looks like the stars are like, like they're right there. Like you could grab them and you can hold on to them. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, you've seen those times. That, uh, I remember just looking out there and I'm going, Lord, how big must you be for you to be able to number the stars in the sky and to be able to put them in their place and to be able to know exactly how they, how they work? God, you are a beautiful, mysterious God. When I don't understand the things that are going on in the world around me, when I can't see what's true, I can rest in the knowledge that there is a God who is bigger than me. He is transcendent, fully other than me, and he is outside of me. And there is a beauty and a peace to be found in sitting in that mystery of who God is right? I remember uh, a number of years ago, I had a Trinitarian professor that um, he loved to bait us on the first day of class, right? And, and we were freshmen coming into seminary. And, and when you're a freshman coming into seminary, you've got everything figured out. You, you know how everything works. And by the time you're graduated, you realize, oh, wow, okay, yeah, it was a lot more complex than I originally thought. But on the first day of class, this Trinitarian professor would love to bait us into trying to come up with an analogy to explain and describe the Trinity, and uh, he loved doing this because uh, he would just make us all feel ashamed at the end of it. But I remember the first guy raised his hand and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, God, the, the Trinity is like water, H2O. Sometimes it's steam, sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's liquid. And immediately he says, and I'm not, the, 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 the prof pulls out this horn, like this bullhorn. He's like, Brr. he's like, heretic. And we're like, oh, my gosh, you're starting off seminary. You're like, all right, I'm already being crucified at the stake for this thing. And. And of course, he goes on to explain that it's actually the, the false um, teaching. It's actually modalism. It is a false belief that God uh, has simply appeared in various modes rather than eternally and always and simultaneously existing as one God, right? That's, the, that's modalism. That's what that is. God appears in three modes rather than eternally and simultaneously existing as one. Church, do you know why that's so important to understand the distinctions that are going on here? Like, it's important to know this because uh, God is not limited by space like we are. Right When Jesus condescended from heaven and he took on flesh and he became man, the Father didn't start, stop ruling sovereignly over the ends of the earth. Right When the Holy Spirit came to live inside and to dwell inside of believers, Jesus didn't start, stop ruling at the right hand of the Father and interceding on our behalf. Right? He's not limited by time and by space like you and I are. It's modalism, that, that, that God appears in three modes. And we see, we see this contradicted even in the baptism of Jesus. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present at the exact same time, right? There's distinction, yet there's unity at the exact same time. Well, another guy got brave, and he's like, okay, well, God is kind of like a three-leaf clover. There's three of them on there, yet it's one three-leaf clover. Or it's like an egg. Uh, it's got a shell. You've got the white part. You've got the yellow yolk and things like that. And, of course, he bulls out the bullhorn, and he blows it, and he's like, he's like heretic. It's actually a form of tritheism, right? Tritheism denies the unity of the substance that's going on there. Like you're not going to look at a broken shell and say, hey, that's an egg. Or you're not going to see just a yolk and be like, that's an egg. Like those are just parts of an egg. Yet the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in the Father. The fullness of deity dwells in the Holy Spirit. It's an error called tritheism. One more guy got kind of bold and he goes, okay, well, I think that the Trinity is kind of like me. My name is Chad. I happen to be a father. I happen to be a son. And I happen to be um, a husband at the exact same time. 
And I hope you're seeing some of the, the, the errors that are kind of going on here. We're trying to grab hold of something that I can be like, okay, this is what God is like. And, and of course, the error that's there is that it denies the distinctions of the persons of the Godhead. Like I could be a husband and father and son at the exact same time, but within the Godhead, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There's distinction and there's unity going on at the exact same time. And so Prof comes around and he's like, all right, Armstrong, your turn. What you got for us? And I'm like, I'm, I'm good with the mystery. I'm like, I'm pretty good with this. I was like, he's kind of like H2O, except for the fact that, no, I'm just kidding. Like, like, there's mystery there, right? Like, that's who God is. That's who God is. He's completely other than, he's bigger, he's, he's knowable, and he's mysterious at the exact same time. And church, sometimes that is a good place to sit there and to be and to just marvel in the bigness and in the, and in the uh, immensity and the mystery of who God is. Now, uh, in the fourth century, uh, Arius is going to come along, and he's going to have a big problem with the Trinity, right? And he's going to start misunderstanding some things and teaching some really, really heretical things. His big problem is going to come with the, the designation of Jesus as the Son of God or the firstborn of all creation. And he's going to be looking at these things, and he's going he's to say, okay, if Jesus is the Son of God, he's the firstborn of all creation, then he's obviously less than and not co-equal with the Father, Right? And it seems to make sense. So what happens is about 325 AD, all the bishops gather at the Council of Nicaea to clarify this issue. And they're looking at all the different confusing passages, which seem to say one thing. And you're kind of going, okay, how do we reconcile some of these different things? And they're looking at passages like John chapter 14, where Jesus specifically says, the Father's greater than me. And you're kind of going, okay, what does that mean? Uh, is he like ontologically greater than me? Or like, what, what, and they look at this entire passage and they kind of come to the conclusion that Jesus is speaking from his human nature at that point in time. From the perspective of where he is, the Father is greater than he is because he condescended from heaven and he took on flesh. And at that point in time, he did not empty himself of his divine nature. He emptied himself of some of the rights that he has as God at that particular time. So he submitted to the will of the Father. And so in that context, he's saying that the Father is greater than me. He's not actually greater than me. There is co-equality in the Godhead. Nevertheless, in this point in time, from the perspective of my humanity, I will submit to the Father in all these different things. Colossians chapter 1, the apostle Paul is going to say, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And of course, that, that was a big problem for Arius. Uh, nevertheless, all he needed to do was keep reading, and I think it would clarify itself. Here's what it says. In him, meaning in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's not that he's literally the firstborn of all creation. That designation would go to Adam, right? It's just that Jesus is first in rank, and he is preeminent over the creation which he brought into being. And so after a lot of time and after a lot of analysis, the council convened and they came up with one simple little statement uh, to denounce Arianism. And here's what they said. They said, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, here's why that's so important. Athanasius, who's there at the time helping construct this language, he describes it like this, because everybody's kind of going like, that is very, very precise language to describe who Jesus is and how he fits inside the Godhead. Uh, here's what he says about this, why it's so important. Life and salvation hang in the balance. Life and salvation hang in the balance. The Bible's teaching on Christ's atonement, it requires a mediator who is fully God with the holiness to make a perfect offering for sin but also a fully human, one who truly represents those to be reconciled 
unto God. In other words, church, it had to be that way. Christ, he had to come, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man for atonement to be made. And we, we remember this from the big story, right? We just got through an entire year, the entire giant story of scripture. But in the beginning, like everything started off well. In the beginning, God spoke and everything that is came into being. And then at the end of each day, he declared that those things were good. But already by chapter three, sin enters the picture. And when sin enters the picture, literally every single thing breaks. And we're not just talking spiritually breaking. We're talking about physically breaking the here and the now and the not yet to come. Physically, spiritually, everything is breaking. And instead of blessing and bliss in the garden, now Adam and Eve are going to experience pain and sadness and sin and despair. Instead of co-equal image bearers of God, there's now going to be power struggles and domination inside of that relationship. Instead of a fruitful garden that's full of beauty and full of provision, now there's going to be thorns and thistles and a ground that does not want to be worked. Instead of life and eternity lived in the presence of God, now there's going to be death and hell and eternal banishment from the presence of God forever. Church, we're talking about this massive, massive fallout that comes from the, from the uh, introduction of sin into the world, all because holy can have absolutely nothing to do with unholy. And I think we see this principle no matter where we go. We see it all over the place, right? Like we know holy can have nothing to do with unholy. Uh, a few years back, I was having dinner with Caleb, my, my son. He was, uh, he was uh, almost three at that time. And uh, so we were having a very profound conversation at the dinner table. And, um, and all of a sudden, he sneezes, right? It's not like one of these sneezes that you can't see anything. It's one of these sneezes where you see every giant particle coming out of that kid's mouth and, and nose. And like he sneezes and the things are like slow motion that day. Like I watch it just like spread all over my food and all over my drink, right? Like I can see the little part, the thing on the top of my glass and I'm sitting there so grossed out by this whole thing. And Caleb looks up and he's like, he's horrified because he knows exactly what just happened too. And he's like, oh gosh, I'm in trouble. So he takes my glass and he takes his little three-year-old hands, like which are bad enough in and of himself. And he starts like wiping it and like smearing the stuff all over the top of the glass. And I'm like, buddy, you can stop that. Like I promise, like I'm good. I'm not going to be drinking that water, right? Like I'm done with that glass. Like I, I, I think we get this. Like purity can have nothing to do with impurity. And holiness can have absolutely nothing to do with unholiness. Like, I don't care if that's, if that's only 2% sneeze water. Like, I'm not drinking that water, right? Like, I don't care if it's 2%, 25%, 50%, 99% contaminated. Like, I'm not even touching that water. What I need is a brand new glass of water. And church, what I'm saying is that is exactly what God has set in motion with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is a brand new life, which you can't do for yourself. One of the things that we're going to realize very quickly is that we can't do anything about our situation. Like Caleb thought that he could try to fix the thing. So he grabs my glass and he actually stuck his hand inside of the water to try to scoop out the sneeze. And I'm like, buddy, like, like that's not helping either. I know you're trying here, buddy. Uh, you're doing the best that you can, but like there's nothing that you can do about that situation. What I need is a brand new glass. And church, it is exactly what God has set in motion with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Church, in the middle of all of that fallout, God makes a promise right then and there that one day still future from that point in time, there is one who will come and undo everything that sin destroyed. I mean, right there in the Garden of Eden, as soon as sin enters the picture, the father comes in and he speaks to Satan in verse 15 of chapter 3. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and this woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he goes on about this great cosmic battle that's going to take place between Satan and uh, this heir of Eve. And he's going to say, he, meaning Jesus one day, is going to crush your head and you're going to strike his heel. In other words, you're going to have a few wins, but he's going to have the final victory. 
In other words, he's gonna, he, you're going to be able to bite, but he's going to actually be able to destroy. And he's going to be able to sting, but he's going he, to crush your head, Satan. In other words, church, like in the middle of that massive destruction, God is still promising grace upon grace upon grace. And it's not just this empty grace, right? And it's not just this far off promise that's still to come. Like immediately then and there, just a little while later, he makes a temporary provision with Moses whereby restoration can be made through a sacrificial system that requires two critical things, blood and innocence. Innocence because God is holy and what relationship, holiness can have nothing to do with unholiness. And blood because that is the penalty of our sin. That's the destruction that our sin brought upon us. Paul is gonna say the wages of sin are death and Hebrews is gonna say without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. And so both are essential for restoration to be had, but here it is. Neither will be sufficient for all time because Hebrews is also going to say the blood of bulls and goats, they can't actually take your sin away. And so he, Israel is going to keep going with this, with this temporary provision and all the while God is going to keep reminding them that there's a day coming when there's going to be this heir of Eve who's going to come and he's going to take care of the blood and innocence which I require for restoration to be made and he's going to crush and destroy Satan's head. All in all, throughout the Old Testament, there's going to be over 300 prophecies pointing to the coming Messiah, preparing people for the coming Messiah so they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is he whom the promise was made of. And it's not going to be general things like, okay, he's a really nice person and, that, and he said some nice things and he was very loving. We're talking about very, very specific prophecies like he's going to be from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's actually going to come from the line of King David. Specific things like he's going to be born of a virgin, which doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. And he's, he's going to be called Emmanuel. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. There's going to be a massacre of children when he's born because there's going to be a wicked King Herod who's jealous of what's taking place. He's going to be crucified with criminals and he's going to be rejected by his own people. And Zechariah 11 is going to say that you, the money used to betray him, it would actually go on to buy a potter's field. We're talking about very specific prophecies. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is going to come on the scene, like one by one, he's going to be fulfilling them over and over again. Like there's 300 in total, and he's going to just be going down the list, fulfilling them over and over again. And we're going to read in Matthew chapter 1 that, that he actually comes from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even King David. And we're going to find out that he was actually born of a virgin, and his name was Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. If it could not be more clear, Matthew chapter 2, he's born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 16, King Herod orders this massacre of children out of jealousy for the coming Messiah. Matthew 27, he's crucified with criminals. John 1, he's rejected by his own people. And in Matthew 27, 9, the money used to betray Jesus was actually used to purchase a potter's field, right? Church, like this doesn't happen, right? This is not normal occurrences. Scholars are gonna say the odds of this happening to one man, one man fulfilling even eight of these prophecies is one and 10 to the 17th power. In other words, it's kind of like dumb and dumber. Like you're saying there's a chance, right? Like it's, it's, there's no chance of this taking place. And so people are beginning to pay attention and they're starting to say, okay, these things are starting to align and who is this Jesus? And then all of a sudden he begins his public ministry of teaching and proclamation and he starts claiming that he's divine. And he says things like, I am the father of one. The father is in me. I am in him. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And in Mark chapter two, he forgives a man of his sin. And of course, Everyone knows what he's doing at that time. Like only God can forgive sin. But Jesus is claiming the power to forgive sin at that point in time. John chapter eight, he's talking to the religious leaders at that time. And he tells them before Abraham even was, I am. Before Abraham even was, I am. In other words, I am eternal. 
Like, I'm not just this other man. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just another dude to hang out with here. Like, before Abraham even was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying at that point in time, which is exactly why they charged him with blasphemy and they tried to have him stoned to death. And they would have been successful except for the fact that with Jesus, like none of this was just words. Like it wasn't just a message. He was backing it all up with action. And in Matthew chapter seven, we're gonna find out that he taught as one who had authority and not like the, the scribes and the teachers of the day. And then he's gonna go around and he's gonna, ha- he's gonna prove his power and authority over the natural realm by, by doing miracle after miracle after miracle. At first, it's like water into wine. And you think that would be enough, right? But he goes on and like the blind are able to see and the lame are able to walk and the deaf are able to hear. And then he speaks to the demon possessed and and they already know who he is. They know his name. They fear him. They shudder and immediately the demons flee. And then like he raises Lazarus from the dead and and then he feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish and and none of this makes sense. and, And he's not doing this to show off. Like, it's all part of a plan that was promised long ago. So it's, it's why in Matthew 12, the religious leaders are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, okay, Jesus, give us a sign. Let us know that you are who people think that you are. And he says this. It's not this. He didn't point to more miracles or anything like this. He says this. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, you want a sign? Here's the sign. I will be crucified, dead, and buried, and three days later, I'm going to walk out of that tomb alive. That's the sign. That's how you're going to know that I am who I say that I am. And he's going to say the same thing. Like, Peter doesn't understand this. Nobody understands why in the world a Messiah would need to die unless there's blood and innocence required for restoration to be made. John chapter 2, he says the same thing. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And he's speaking of the temple of his body. Church, in other words, Jesus knew exactly what he came to do. He didn't come simply as an example of how to live. He didn't come to teach a better way of life and he didn't come as a prophet pointing people to the one true God. He came as a substitute that you and I may have life. Like that's why he came. It's why Romans chapter five, Paul is gonna say that in every possible way, Jesus is the better Adam who came and did for us what Adam was never able to do. In other words, he's the fulfillment of God's promise that was made so long ago. So like Adam, Jesus was also fully human. And like Adam, Jesus is also the first of his kind. And like Adam, Jesus was also tempted by Satan. But unlike Adam, Jesus was fully divine. And unlike Adam, Jesus never gave in to sin. So unlike Adam, Jesus' death was not a punishment for his sin. It was the blood and innocence required for sin to be undone. So what no one else knew was that while Jesus was hanging upon the cross, and when he was suffering the worst of Satan's sting, what no one else could see was that at the exact same time, he was simultaneously crushing and destroying uh, Satan's, Satan's work in our life. He was undoing everything that sin destroyed. So when Adam ate from the tree and he brought in death, Jesus died upon the tree and three days later he ushered in life. In Genesis 3.21, when God made a covering for Adam's nakedness and shame from the dead skin of a lamb, here on the cross, hanging naked and ashamed, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of God whose innocence and blood now clothed us in his righteousness. That's why Paul's gonna say this. He's gonna say, just as one sin resulted in the condemnation of all, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, church, everything that sin destroyed, Jesus came to make right partially now and fully still future. Sin brought in sickness and a disease. And Jesus is going to say, go and tell John everything that you hear and see. The blind now receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy, they're cleansed. The deaf are able to hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Sin came in and and brought death and eternal separation. But the gospel is going to say that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And sin brought in domination into the home. But Ephesians is going to say that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Wives to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up fully for her. Sin brought in favoritism and racism. But Romans is going to say, in Christ, there is now no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, that is why we worship him when no one else does. Church, that is why we worship him when no one else does. It's the greatest commandment. When he says, you want to know what you should do, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of who you are. Lay it down at my feet. Die to yourself every day. Then come follow me. Church, you don't say that to your teacher. Like you don't give your life, you don't love, you don't, you don't give everything about who you are to a teacher. You do that to the son of God who came to save. Church, he is not just a friend. He's not just a homeboy to hang out with. He's not Lucifer's brother like the Mormons say that he is. He's not a prophet. He's not an enlightened teacher. He's not one of a million distant gods. He is the triune God of all creation who took on flesh to become the blood and innocence that was required for you and I to be restored and have life again with him for all of eternity. And church, if we could just see him just a little bit more clearly, I promise you it would make all the difference in the world. I want to end with this quote from A.W. Tozer, easily one of my favorites. I've shared it with you guys a couple times now, but this is largely an impetus behind this whole series and why I want to do an entire year in the life of Christ. Here's what he says. He says, I think it'd be a wonderful thing if every preacher in America would begin to preach about God and nothing else for an entire year. One solid year to preach about God, who he is, his attributes, his perfections, his being, the kind of God that he is, why we dare to trust him, why we can't trust him, why we should trust him, why we can love him, why we should love him, and why we dare not fall short. And keep on preaching on God, the triune God, and keep on until God fills the whole horizon and the whole world. Faith would spring up like grass by the water courses. Then let a man get up and preach a promise, and the whole congregation would say, I can trust that promise. Look at the one who made it. That's it. So church, for the next year, we're going to be taking our time, and we're going to be looking at the entire life of Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And my hope is that we would be able to behold him just a little bit more. That we'd be able to see him like the angels and saints do in Revelation, where they are beholding the fullness of God. They're seeing him, all of his deity, all of his beauty, everything about what he came to do and everything that he's accomplished and all that they can think to say is worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And they're singing out to him day and night, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. My hope and my prayer is that we would have a heart like the psalmist that says, one thing I've asked that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to simply behold his beauty and to be able to meditate in his temple. Church, that's the goal. It's just to simply see him and to be able to behold him exactly as he is because how you see him will absolutely determine the way that you follow him. Heavenly Father, we, um, we see you. <laughs> we see you a little bit more and more every day. Father, we see you. When we were lost and dead in our sins, you didn't send a messenger. You didn't, you didn't just send a memo. You sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to condescend from heaven and take on flesh, to be the better Adam, to live the sinless life that he was not able to live, that we were not able to live, and to 
go to the cross to suffer and die. It's because that's what our sin brought upon us. Lord, we see you. Three days later, you walked out of that tomb alive, proving you're not just a teacher, you're not just a prophet, you're not an enlightened master, you're not just a friend. You're the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. You and you alone have the power and the authority to forgive our sins. You and you alone have the power and the authority to grant us righteousness. You have the power and the authority to cleanse us from within, to set us free and to grant us salvation. Father, we see you. We see that you knew we would be unable to be holy in and of ourselves, so you sent Jesus to come and be holy for us. You offered us this free gift of salvation to any and all who would simply come to you in genuine faith, believing that you are the Son of God and trusting in you for the forgiveness of our sins, for cleansing now and for all of eternity. Lord, for the person that's come in today and they've been trusting in something else, maybe they've been crushed by the weight of their sin and thought to themselves, there's no way in the world that a God would ever love me or approve of me. Or maybe it's the other extreme and they've been boasting in their pride and their righteousness and their good deeds and the fact that they think that they're better than most of the rest of the world. Father, I pray that they would lay those things down. We acknowledge that we're not saved by works of righteousness, but only because of the shed blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. The innocence and blood that's required for restoration to be made. Father, our prayer today and for the rest of this year is that we'd be able to see you just a little bit better. Wherever we are, for the people that have been walking with you for an entire lifetime, God, would we see you more clearly? For the people that started today, would we see you more clearly? Fully God, fully man, God in the flesh, knowable and mysterious at the exact same time. And may it bring us to our knees in glad worship day by day. Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory and honor that you deserve. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand. Let's sing one more time.